Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an analyst, writer, and engineer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, an investor, educator, and product leader currently working in the autonomous space. And today we're talking to Phil Bronner, founding and general partner of Arden Venture Partners, investing in companies that transform the way we work. So Phil, uh, happy to have you on. Happy to be here. And I have to say the name is very cool. Love the name of the show. Oh yeah. That's, nice. that's Jake's doing. Yeah. Very cool, Jake. Uh, so Phil, um, I wanted to just, I guess, like start out by asking, could you give us just a general, like sort of like intro about yourself and maybe your career path and how you ended up where you are? Sure. So I started in venture capital back in 1999. I was with a fund based in DC. Uh, we had about 650 million under management. Uh, I was there for about 15 or 16 years. I invested about $100 million for that fund. Uh, led 16 investments, worked on a total of 20. Uh, you know, in the late 90s, it was all sort of enterprise software because I was a B2B guy. And then as things started to shift to the cloud, I did a lot of infrastructure related work. Uh, and then post that, did, did a lot in the SaaS world. Um, I also co-founded a company during that time that was venture-backed. This was around 2012 that I ran in addition to managing my portfolio. Then I moved to chairman of that back in 2017 and started investing on my own account. So I was an angel investor for about three or four years. Uh, that's the time where I connected with my now co-founder. He's an individual. His name is Phil Herget. Uh, he's He's been in venture for about 30 years, so a little longer than I had been. Um, and he had been investing on his own account a few years before I started. So we started doing deals together, and that led us to found uh, Ardent. And so it seems like what I hear from that is that VC was – you didn't go into VC like straight out of school or straight out of um... – uh, you know, it wasn't sort of like your preordained path. You made an active choice at some point, uh, maybe in like early or middle of your career to, to, to shift to venture capital. Uh, how, what was that process like? Was there a pivotal moment that led you down that path? Yeah. The pivotal moment was, um, you know, a startup that just didn't get off the ground. So I was, um, mm. I was a McKinsey consultant. Um, this is back in the late nineties. And this was in the first dot-com bubble. You know, myself mm -hmm. and two other McKinsey consultants started this business. I, yeah, well, we had a business idea, a concept that we tried to get started and uh, sort of left McKinsey to do that. And um, we were sort of grinding away at it. It never really fully got caught steam. But through that process, like, prior to that time, I thought, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. That's That's all I want to do. And, you know, when we started it, you know, I found that, you know, sort of grinding on the same idea each day wasn't as interesting to me as, you know, what I was doing in consulting, sort of working on this and then working on something else. Mm. I sort of have that ADD personality. And so <laughs> I found I like that startups. the macro, the, the macro lens. Let, let's, yes. let's give it the term it deserves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The elegant term of macro lens, right? Right. So the mac, the quote unquote macro lens, um, you know, and so I found I like startups and I like working on multiple projects. And so that's what led me to venture capital. It's kind of interesting because I feel like there's, 
there's a few ways you kind of get into venture capital. You're kind of in this, this almost this third bin, uh, and maybe it's more common than I think, but I, I usually see two paths. One is the people that, you know, they, they graduate, they go into private equity and then sort of kind of end up in, uh, they end up as VCs. And then there is the path of people who are technologists for like a long time and then sort of end up in venture capital. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting uh, because I always feel like, you know, in the second path, the people who sort of like have their technology careers, it almost feels like, you know, they start out building features uh, or building, um, you know, you work on the thing that you're sort of assigned, you sort of build that, then you start building like maybe like a large chunk of things, maybe like a section or maybe like all of infra for a company or something like that. Then maybe you go start your own company and you build your own company. And then you sort of have this progression where then the next thing you do is you kind of, uh, you decide to build, you know, companies by being, by, by being a venture capitalist. Um, and, and some, some people like, you know, sort of may cut one of them, one or more of those portions out. Uh, do you think that maybe, uh, do you think you're in a third bucket or do you feel like you fall into maybe one of those two? Yeah, I'd say so. So first it was the late nineties. So this was, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 some years ago. So venture was still a much smaller cottage industry, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, many of the folks who, uh, went into venture were either operators, as you mentioned. Um, well, so let's segment. So there's early stage venture capital and late stage venture capital. So for late stage venture capital, you often had investment bankers going into that. And then for early stage venture capital, you either had founders or you had product managers or, you know, consultants. And so consultants have always, uh, you know, sort of transitioned into that area if you had a technical background. So I uh, started out at IBM as a software engineer. Um, before sort of going back. I did uh, a JD MBA as well before going to McKinsey. And so I had a technical background uh, with consulting and and that's what sort of prepared me for venture capital. But the the last thing I would say on venture is, you know, there are a thousand different ways to transition into venture um, because the skill set you need uh, is one that you can develop in multiple areas. And, you know, it's really just getting that shot to get in because there's so few few roles i think uh that's that's a really good point i also think this like there's like vc has so many different verticals that you can invest in uh and so as a consultant for instance if you happen to like specialize let's say i don't know in payments right you could probably you know be at least grow into being a vc in payments uh or another vertical that had like similar sort of dynamics uh i don't know why i use payments as the example but i just feel like when jake is on probably because i'm here yeah 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 no i think it's interesting so what i would say is you know the reason i think consultants and product managers tend to be uh the type that early stage venture firms are looking for is because you, you sort of have that sort of core problem solving ability you know how to evaluate markets um, and, and assess them pretty well. Um, you know, often, you know, often, you know, you're, you're reasonably good at reading people because, you know, you're often jumping around from project to project. You're working with a lot of people. Uh, and so I think, you know, those sort of market-based skills, 
analytic core analytic and anal and analyst skills are ones that I think lend themselves to early stage venture. I thought it was interesting the the segmentation that you were talking about of like late stage venture versus early stage venture as well. And like I couldn't help but think to myself the variables that might play into like why someone would go into each one. You, you know, you mentioned bankers kind of coming in like late stage. I assume that's like risk profile and access to capital that like you know kind of pushes uh, folks more towards that like later stage investment and then like you know maybe not even an understanding of, of the product maybe at the granular level like you're saying and then like early stage you're looking at like these product managers who really have built product on their own they understand the nitty-gritty they understand what it takes to build said product um, and so therefore that coupled with maybe access to capital via fundraising is a little bit of a different pathway forward so is that like a correct assessment in my head or, or is that something that you think um, maybe needs a little bit more tweaking? Uh, you know, somewhat. What I'd say is, you know, in the early stage, you know, when you're assessing a company, you know, as you mentioned, you, you're basically assessing, you know, three things. One is the individual, you know, two is the product, early product, and then three is the market, right? You don't really have a company with financials and all those types of things. And so, you know, the skills you need to do those things tend to be skills that you develop as a product manager or or a consultant, right? Or or you know uh, a founder, you know, also brings those skills yeah. as well. In the later stage, you know, you have a company; it has financials. You know, you're you're sort of evaluating, you know, uh, a company the way. It, you know, depending on how late stage you are, you know, the way that an investment banker would, that's, you know, evaluating a company that's about to go public. And so you're, you're doing a lot more financial modeling, even your assessment of markets is financially driven. And so mm -hmm. a lot of the skills that you've developed as a investment banker sort of lend themselves to, you know, late stage investing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, with uh, sort of shifting gears now to Ardent uh, as a whole, uh, tell us about Ardent and what kind of companies does Ardent invest in? Yeah, so Ardent, you know, our thesis is sort of three-pronged. And so the first is really looking at talent. And so talent is more distributed than ever. Um, you know, um, we, we saw this trend even pre-COVID as large tech companies were just in a war for talent in their geography. You know, if you're in the Bay Area, you know, it's just brutal recruiting talent. If you're in Seattle, same thing. And so a lot of large tech companies set up regional outposts across the country to just have access to talent in other places. Uh, and most times when they did that, they set up regional outposts in places like Austin or Denver or Atlanta. And so a big piece of our strategy is targeting these sort of emerging tech hubs outside of the Bay Area. Uh, the second piece is really focused on stage. And so when you look at the, uh, the ecosystems in these areas, there tends to be a pretty robust pre-seed ecosystem. And, you know, folks like my partner and I were writing checks or pre-seed funds or incubators, you know, all those types of folks are doing those deals. Mm -hmm. And post-COVID for today's Series A, you know, funds in the Bay Area and New York and other places will fly in to do deals that are in the Series A uh, um, segment. But if you're looking to raise money between those two, and that tends mm -hmm. to be raising six to 12 million dollars it's really hard to come by in those markets and so we focus on that sort of post-seed early a stage and then the third piece is really focused on the theme which is the transformation of work and so it's looking at how automation technologies are fundamentally changing the way work gets done uh, and you know we have three sectors within that 
that I'm happy to dig into if, if you'd like. Let's well, sure. do it. Okay, so within uh, the transformation of work, three areas. The first are vertical applications that leverage an automation driver. And so the way we think about automation is broad. So it's not just AI, AI and ML and robotics, although we spend a lot of time around that, but it's also low code, no code, it's marketplaces, it's digitization of business process. The key is that that automation macro sort of changes the key success mm -hmm. factors in an industry and enables new leaders to emerge. And so that's what we're looking for in that market. You know, we look at verticals broadly, but two that we're spending a lot of time around are financial services is one and, and digital health is another. The second area is future of work. So looking at, you know, things like reskilling, retraining, uh, healthcare, not healthcare, excuse me, uh, HR, recruiting, mm. uh, tools that enterprise employees use for things like remote work or hybrid work, a lot of developer tools, spending a lot of time around that. Uh, and then three is security, but the way we think about security is related to transformation of work. And so 10 years ago, we were all sitting in an office, our servers were there. And so this security mm -hmm. model of having firewalls with access controls for employees made sense. But when you have, you know, your servers in the cloud and folks are working remotely, that just doesn't work anymore. And so then you have to sort of focus on application level security and securing data at rest and, you know, evaluating the security model of third parties to ensure it's similar to your security model so you don't leave open a back door. And so those are the types of things that we look at within security. Uh, and so one thing I wanted to sort of, I guess, double click on what you said was you talked about sort of like newer tech hubs and maybe you have an answer, maybe you don't, but have you seen any sort of trends or factors that create these newer tech hubs in the country? Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I would say, and, and first I wouldn't say, I'd say growing tech hubs, Be, you know, so mm -hmm. when I think about the areas that we described, you know, Austin, Denver, Boulder, Atlanta, DC being one, Pittsburgh being another, you know, all these area markets are markets I've been investing in for 20 years and have made a lot of money doing it. Right. And so we've built Big companies have been built in these areas, but they're accelerating. And, mm -hmm. and what I like to use is New York as an example of sort of what I think is going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years. And so, but if to answer your question, I'd say first, like, what are, what are these growing tech hubs? They're places where tech people want to live, right? You know, they have, you know, there's something interesting about the area that's already attracted a lot of talent. It, it's, it's a place where you can go and you know feel like you're still among your people but maybe you know the cost of living is a little bit lower mm -hmm. or you know you have access like to the mountains in colorado or, or, or mm -hmm. things like that um but you know in terms of what we think is going to happen in these markets i like to use new york as an example so 15 years ago you know new york i was investing there and i was investing in dc and they were very similar right so new york was a billion dollars and dc was a billion dollars in that year, Google opened its regional office. So they hired 300 engineers and product managers and many of the hires mm -hmm. moved to that area. So it wasn't as if they were hiring people who were there. You take that and you couple that with the financial crisis and the shift of, of tech folks from the banks into technology. And that really created the sort of foundation for what we mm. see as New York today. And so, you know, 15 years cool. ago, it was, yeah, it was a billion dollars yeah. today. It's 20 
it's 22% of venture capital in the U.S. Yeah. And so I think that's what we're going to see in these markets. It's not just what we're seeing now. We're seeing growth today. But 10 or 15 years from now, this influx of talent is going to lead to great companies being built over time. It's funny you 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 say that uh, because I've seen sort of some other call them secondary or tertiary markets in the country, and they they take the incubator approach, which is we're going to go and we're going to fund startups, and we are going to try to hope that you know there's there's a couple hits in all of this, and that'll kickstart our tech ecosystem, and I think that's one way to do it. But my my view on this has always been. That's a kind of like a, a a grand slam strategy. You're you're gonna fund a lot of companies, and you're gonna take some losses, and maybe there there are hits in there. Whereas maybe one of the ways to distribute tech talent strategically is to try to attract you know big sort of like companies to your area. And then, like the spinoffs that you get from that are 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 actually pretty robust because you have people who have, you know, built things at the highest level, for you know some of the best companies in the world, and sort of can take that knowledge and sort of bring that to their startup, versus you know sort of like this organic grassroots strategy. Uh, any thoughts there? Yeah, no, I think I think you make a really good point, and and I think you really need to do both, and so. When you look mm -hmm. at, you know, a big tech company moving in, there's there's three things that that does, right? So one is exactly what you mentioned, which is you bring in this new influx of talent that, you know, it brings a skill set of be building technology at the highest level. So that's number one, right? But number two is, you know, for all those folks who are starting companies in that region, it provides a backstop if it doesn't work. Right. So like if yeah. you go to if you move to an area and you join a startup, you want to know that, hey, if this doesn't work, I can still get a job. You know what I mean? And so bringing in a big tech company says, hey, you know, like in D.C., like if I join a tech startup tomorrow and it doesn't work, I can go to Amazon. And that's huge. And then the third thing, as you said, is that these big tech companies over time will spin off people that will start new companies. And so I think all three of those things happen when you bring a big tech company to the region. Or a big company is built. Yeah, I, I agree yeah. with that point. Um, I, I think that second point that you made in terms of like, you know, risk backstop for the founders themselves is a really big one. Not even that, but like, you know, even in general for for those big companies that move, like even the folks that moved for Google initially, I imagine that they weren't like Google's a pretty safe company in general. They're probably like, eh, like I can make this work and that's okay if there's not many other options around, I can just move back. But like then Facebook moved in. You know, Instagram, I think, had an office there. That's what happens. Exactly. That flywheel yeah. just gets gets working, um, which makes me feel, you know, like, that. yeah, that risk tolerance goes lower, which is, I mean, if we think back to even before those types of moves started happening, that's exactly why the urban centers were so, you know, important for growth, right? Is because people would move to those urban centers going, okay, well, I can get a job in one market or one company rather. And then I know that tomorrow, if it doesn't work out, I can just jump to company B. Um, and, and that's okay with me. Um, so that, that's really cool to see that kind of inf influencing the, the startup ecosystem as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, remote work helps these days because, you know, if, if you lose a job, you can hopefully work remotely. Yeah. Uh, but, but that backstop is still really important. But then Arun, to your other point, you know, like I think 
that sort of bottoms up piece is critically important as well. And just sort of having a community in that area, right, where folks are getting together, they're cross-pollinating, ideas are being exchanged. You know, someone can see a person who's spun out from a company and found a new company and they've had some success and can share their wisdom. All of that is critically important as well. Well, isn't there like a, there's a niche play in that as well, right? Like a lot of these um, places they, they have a niche, like, I mean, Pittsburgh, right? Uh, Arun, yep. where, where you're working right now, you know, robotics automation, you know, yeah. uh, self-driving. I mean, that, that, that is that almost like grassroots, but then also bigger companies are starting to, you know, move their type uh, of companies there to, to grab that talent pool away from the Carnegie Mellon and, and whatever else um, that, that exists there. That's really great to see. I think some of the other ones, you know, you might see like, I mean, obviously New York has like a lot of fintech growth, uh, San Francisco has some as well. Then you have like, you know, some government contracting and things like that down in San Diego, you have healthcare in Boston, you know, that's, that's super interesting to, to think about that as well. And how that may interplay with these larger companies that are more general tech moving in, if you will. Absolutely. You know, in DC, we're big in security, right? Because NSA and CIA are here. Yeah. And then yeah, I didn't even place- know that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then as Amazon moves in, you know, their broader set business and it just sort of can cross pollinate new ideas yeah. start to form. You know, and uh, we, we met for coffee recently. And one thing that really struck me is that you have this very developed view on the future state of like the world, robotics, AI, and kind of what the future of tech looks like. And how did that form? You know, was it was it observation, experience? Do, do you do you sort of sit down with experts regularly? All of that is it like a deliberate sort of like, you know, do you have a deliberate strategy as to how you cultivate that view? Um, I'm just really curious because I was super impressed. Rarely do I sit down with somebody and sort of talking about them about like what what I think like you know the robotics industry is going to look like in you know in five, ten, fifteen years and uh, get as like what I think as informed of a view uh, as actually any one of my colleagues probably. So I appreciate that, Arun. And a quick sidebar on that, by the way, just to <laughs> tell you uh, about Arun, because we met for breakfast. We got so caught up in our meeting. I invited him to breakfast. You know, I ended up having another breakfast before, so tab was a little larger. And we went over <laughs> and I had a meeting that I had to run for and he covered it, which I still feel indebted to him for that. So thank you, Arun, for that. Oh, no problem. Actually, I was getting stressed out. I was getting stressed out because you were late. And, and like, I, I was getting anxious. So I'm like, you know, it's actually going to be better for Phil and me if I cover this rather than Phil being late. You know, whatever the whatever the check is, I got it because I feel like this is the best situation for both of us. That's why. That's how I felt. Well, look, I really, really appreciate it. I was like, oh, yeah, no the worst guy. Oh my god. <laughs> but oh my god. But anyway, to answer, I digress. But to answer your question, um, it's it's doing. You know, and I appreciate your comment. But it's doing exactly what uh, what we were doing. I try to find the smartest people in these markets, and I consider you to be that in the automation space, and just spend time talking to them. Right? Like we do a ton of at the firm. We do a ton of secondary research where we're trying to track every company that's being funded in every sector that we care about. Mm-hmm. We create market maps and all that stuff, which is a great sort of foundation. But to really learn where a market's going, you have to talk to the experts. And so I try to get in front of people like you as much as I can. I have a I have an aside question, by the way. Um, does Arden have an office as we're talking about remote work? 
is really funny, right? So literally today, we just uh, decided to get like a, uh, you know, it's an office, but it's like in a co-working space, you know, uh, yeah. we'll probably yeah. be, we travel a lot, you know, now that things are opening back up and then some people will be working from home, some people not working from home full time, but like a couple days and all that. And so we're going to start with that and see how it goes. And then, you know, we may increase over time. I think everybody's trying to figure it out, right? Like we yeah. spent, you know, given our theme, we spent a ton of time talking to companies about, you know, how they're thinking about hybrid work and all that stuff. And I tell you, you know, everyone's trying to figure it out, but it's important. It's critical. And so when you say it's, uh, I guess two things strike me there. Number one, uh, what do you think that looks like from the people that you're talking to, if you can share that? And then what are the like sort of like technical underpinnings of that look like? So like kind of like what is the future state of the world and what does that mean for, for, for tech? Yeah, totally. So, you know, it's fascinating about the last, whatever, 14 months as it relates to this particular issue. You know, we were all in the office or 95% of us were, and then we were all working remote, right? And those two modalities are pretty easy to manage because everyone's treated similarly, right? Mm -hmm. Now, where we are now becomes a heck of a lot more complicated, right? Because you move into a hybrid world and there first are a number of strategic questions you have to answer. And the threshold here is that your employees have now become comfortable with working remotely and they know they can be effective and you know they can be effective. And so the first thing that you hear when you talk to companies is that their employees see getting remote and hybrid right as important as the way they think about compensation. So it is a really, mm -hmm. really big deal. And so companies that get it right will be able to attract talent. Others that don't will may have challenges. At least that's the way a lot of folks are thinking about it. And so the first set of strategic questions are sort of like, how many days are folks going to be in the office? How many days are they going to be in, you know, at home? How is that going to vary by role within the company? Mm -hmm. How is it going to vary based on tenure? Because you may want to have some of the newer people who you may want them in all the time. You may want the senior people to have more flexibility. Then the, the other sort of questions that you get into just in terms of the strategic questions. So let's say you lay all that right, that all of that out, you get it right. And then let's say you have this individual who's, you know, a younger employee. Let's say you're allowing folks to work at home three days and in the office two days. But they find that, you know, some of the senior folks are there all the time. And so they start spending time in the office all the time. Social capital. Yes. And then they start to get promoted more rapidly. How does that change the way everybody thinks yeah. about it? So there's like, there's a thousand strategic questions. And then once you lay that out, there's a number of tactical questions in terms of just executing that, right? Like, let's say you allow some people to work some days and other people to work other days. How do you know who's in the office? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like totally. what do you, what do you, like, what is it? Is it like uh, some sort of screen that says these people are here, these people aren't? Do you have to walk by the office to see if they're there? Like, there's a lot of things. Like, I could go on and on. Like, people yeah. who are working from home, how do you make them feel like first class citizens in the office? Like, what do you literally do? Like, how do you set up the configuration in the office to do that? Some of these conversations that are happening in the hallways that we know are really important, like how do you capture them? What do you do? Like how do you make sure other people are aware of, you know, so there's just a lot of stuff that needs to happen. I think it's going to be a lot of trial and error, but it's important. It is a really, really important issue for a lot of these companies. And then even in the war for talent, like being able to 
getting this right will allow you to have people who are working remotely in areas where you struggle to hire them, right? So there's just a lot, there's a lot of potential benefit to, to doing this right. Yeah, I think our, you... our biases play a lot into this as well, right? Like, I mean, if you think about recency bias, if you think about um, just top of mind bias of people being in the office, it's like, you know, if you have senior leaders that are going to be in the office because they need to be there, well, of course, they're going to understand and see people in the office and then therefore they'll be top of mind. And like, that's a hard thing to battle against, you know? It, um, yeah. I don't know if I was a senior leader, you know, someone in the you know, C-level or whatnot, if I were thinking about that and going, hmm, like that chain of command then goes directly down. Directors are seeing, you know, senior managers, senior managers seeing, seeing managers and like, therefore the, the chain goes up. Um, so that that to me is something that I don't think, and actually I'd be curious to hear your opinion on this from a future of work perspective. How do we create those moments, those those, you know, serendipitous hallway moments that Steve Jobs is so, you know, famous for trying to create into the, the big ring that they have now going on with the Apple campus. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that's the, you know, billion dollar question that everybody's trying to answer. You know, I'd say, you know, um, so there's this one segment of companies, and I think it's called Virtual HQ. There's a few companies that are in it. I'm, I'm not saying this is the right way to do it, but I, but I do think it's interesting. You know, what, what they've done, and I think it works better for remote as opposed to hybrid, but they sort of create almost like a video game out of the mm -hmm. experience where like you can see the office. It sort of looks like an office. and You can talk to people only when you walk by them. Yeah. You know, so they're using some of the yeah. audio sort of technologies mm. from gaming, other sort of gaming, you know, sort of techniques to sort of drive engagement. Like, I think everybody's experimenting right now, but I think getting this right will be really important. And I also think like I've started to travel post uh, vaccine and I am surprised. I guess I shouldn't be, but I'm surprised by how important face-to-face -face is. Like it's not, oh, yeah. like it is actually important, right? Like you you do get a lot out of that. And, um, you know, and so so I think it will be hybrid for a lot of places, you know? And probably yeah, tech, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, I think your your brain just reacts differently. Like the, the chemicals that literally get emitted from, from your brain as, as you meet other person, you know, those types of hormones, whatever, like, if I were to go biological on this, it's like, that's like what we crave and in virtual, like only gets you so far. Like I had a, I had a lunch with some of my colleagues for the first time. So for, for myself, I actually onboarded into Stripe completely remotely. So mm -hmm. I interviewed remotely. I onboarded remotely. I've never, uh, I hadn't, I guess I shouldn't say never. Cause I just had lunch with some of my colleagues, but I had never met anyone in person. It was extremely hard to onboard because they had all been in, in person in the office for so long. And so like, you know, being trying to be a part of that and, you know, making extra time to like put meetings on people's calendars to have like these very inorganic, but like trying to be organic touch points just was so difficult. Um, and so I just, if someone could even solve that onboarding piece as well, I think that that would just go so far. Um, but that I was totally my agree. personal experience. No, I totally agree with you. And, and, and there's a thousand of those, like when you think about, you know, the workplace, right. And, totally. um, you know, like you, you go out for lunch, you spend the first 20 minutes just talking about random stuff, right? Like yeah. when you're on a zoom two minutes in, you're talking business, you know, it's just a very different, you know, modality. Uh, for sure. The, uh, the one thing that, so Jake, you mentioned onboarding into Stripe, uh, kind of during COVID, I went through a merger 
Wow. During COVID. Mm. So like, you know, 800 people got together with another company <laughs> and we had to do that all remotely, you know, and it, it's, it was really interesting. Uh, and I'm actually kind of impressed as to how well it's worked so far. Uh, if you think about the challenge of what that was, uh, the largest like merger in robotics history, like in that time, it, it, you know, with COVID, with remote, and the fact that we're all together now, kind of getting worked on, it is is pretty pretty amazing. And it actually, I think, shows what's possible. Uh, and I don't know if that you know you can extrapolate. But do you that want results. it to be like that? It would have been easier. It would have been easier if we were in person. Like like there are there are people I haven't met. Like there's just people I just don't know. Like the first time I meet them is you know, something goes wrong or, or whatever. And you just didn't even know that person was in charge of something or, 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 or any of that. Whereas, you know, if you're in the office, you sort of have this like passive socialization that goes on where you kind of know who is doing what, you know, maybe, you know, you're, you're eating with them or, or, you know, um, you bump into them or something like that. Uh, that goes on. I mean, none of that's gone on. So, um, you know, I would say that it's pretty amazing to see how, how well our tools have done in all of this. Is it the ideal state? Yeah, probably not. I think that's right. I mean, I think you both are right. You know, it's like we're, we're getting it done, but it's not ideal, right? And it's like I think about it on the venture side because, you know, so much of what we do is we're just in the people business. Like everything comes down to people relationships. And at the end of mm -hmm. the day, what's most important between the investor and founder is trust, right? And so as you think about deals right now, right, um, you know, Zoom allows you to evaluate deals across the country and all that good stuff. Uh, deal velocity has increased dramatically. So the amount of time you have to sort of assess a deal goes it's gone way down. Um, and when you're doing it over Zoom, you don't form that personal relationship. So after, like when you look at venture, like after the check is written is when the game begins. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's, things are going to go wrong by definition, you know, and you got to have a trust relationship with the founder and it's just really hard to, to fully establish that. So I think it's going to be interesting. So many deals have gotten done that way over the last 12 to 18 months. It'll be interesting as the going gets tough to see how that relationship works out. Do you think that extends to the companies that you invest in? So like there's the VC sort of like founder relationship or the VC company relationship, but then there's also like the internal relationships at the company. Does that change? Yeah, uh, I think absolutely. You know, and I think it's like, and we're going to like, there are some huge benefits to working remotely. And, and so we want to have some of that, but we need it. There, there's an, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's ideal, but there's definitely a more ideal state than fully in person or fully online. And we have to figure out what that is, you know, so that we have the benefit of both, but it's not going to be, it's going to take trial and error. It's not going to be as easy as we think. So the flip side of assess like not being able to assess deals through like founder trust and being able to like you know create that trust the the flip side of that might be that you don't have biases towards founder trust what are your what is your thought on that in terms of evaluating the the merits of a deal yeah so it's fascinating so because there's different types of biases right so there's um you know, physical bias based on race, gender, all those types of things. And then age, you know, or, you know, where you live, all these different things that sort of come into it. 
And, um, you know, some of that you pick up when you travel to the office and you meet with them in person, but you can get to some, a lot of that, you know, when you're communicating with them over zoom or, or, you know, and so I think a lot of the biases are probably, um, a lot of the biases we think about are probably still there, but I do. Yeah. yeah, But I do think like, to your point, right? Like, um, this is the way I would say it. It's like we over index on our ability to assess people. Right. And so, you know, uh, there's a lot of research on that. And so when you go and you meet with a founder, you leave with a, perspective, you know, specifically when you meet with them in person. And a lot of that, there is a bias that comes into that. And a lot of that may not be truly accurate. Some of us think it is over time and it's pattern recognition and all that. And so I do think you're right on that, right? Because you don't have that same feeling, right? Like when I meet with a founder, I come away with a pretty strong sense versus when I meet with them over Zoom, I have to say, "Hmm, I need to spend a lot more time with with yeah. that individual and their and their other team members to really get that. So I agree with you on that. Really cool. Really cool. Thanks for sharing. Uh, I had just to ride on to that. We was Jake and I were sort of just doing some research for the podcast and we noticed that diversity inclusion was a big value on Arden's site. Yeah. Um and we talked about biases just now. Uh can you maybe like walk us through what the challenges are that are associated with that. I mean, we know that there's an inequity and opportunity in this country and, and with other things as well. And um, how how do you guys approach that at Ardent? Yeah, for sure. And so just framing it, you know, I'm African-American and been in the business for over 20 years. And I think back to when I started in 99 and I went to my first National Venture Capital Association conference. And I think there were probably... I mean, there were three, 4,000 people. There was a lot of people in this room. I'll never yeah. forget it for the rest of my life. I walk in and I think in total, there may have been one or two other African-Americans in the whole room, right? And it was just, wow. it was such a shocking sort of welcome to venture capital sort of thing, you know? Um, but, you know, the industry has not been diverse for underrepresented minorities or women for a very long time. And that's both in terms of investors and in terms of what they invest in. And I, and, and, you know, there are a lot of sort of historical reasons that's the case. And, and, and what I would say is I would bucket those. And, and the first is just, you know, there's obviously racism and, 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 and that's a huge issue. And so we're going to put that over here and there's people who fit into that bucket. Outside of that bucket, I'd say people who, you know, aren't necessarily racist. What I would say is this is what venture is all about, right? So if you think about at the end of the day, what is venture about, right? Venture is about relationships, right? And relationships with your co-investors, relationships with your network, right? And that network Mm -hmm. generates your deal flow, right? And in all of that, you know, um, often, you know, it's your circle of, you know, friends and, and work colleagues who sort of create that. And, and what I would say is, specifically with venture, it's not just those relationships, but what we do every day is we take risk on relationships, right? So when I back a founder, I'm taking a risk on that individual. Mm -hmm. When I hire a person into my company, my companies, I'm often hiring people who haven't done that role before, right? And so I'm evaluating them. I'm taking a risk on them and putting them in to that, that, 
particular situation. And so when you take risk on people, you try to reduce risk by sort of tacking towards things that make you comfortable, right? And when you tack towards things that make you comfortable, you know, you tend to tack towards people that either you've backed in the past who have been successful or people you know, right? And so when you look at the circles within venture or within technology, they tend to look very similar because they're taking risk on people like them, right? And so Mm -hmm. from an ardent perspective, the way I've always seen this industry is that that creates opportunity, right? Because there are a lot of people out there who don't look like that who are super talented at what they do, who need a shot, right? And if you give them that shot, either by investing in them or by hiring them into their, to your companies, they can be very successful. And so what we really try to do is say, look, we, like what we're looking to build is a top tier venture firm over time. So we in no way are settling like, but what we, what we want to make sure is that our pipeline is diverse. So like, and we can track it and say, Hey, look, we want to make sure that 25 plus percent of our pipeline is either founded by an underrepresented minority or a woman right now. They're going to go through the same process, but what that's going to lead to is a higher conversion rate at the bottom of the funnel with diverse founders. Same thing for executives, right? So build a diverse pool of executives that we can, so that we can ensure as a fund, any of our companies that are doing searches for tech executives or engineers, they have a diverse pool to choose from. And if you're able to do those types of things, you should lead to a more diverse tech ecosystem. And I guess uh, you talked about how you measure, you can measure progress. I guess there's a, there's another side to this, which is you can make the investments, but we both know that like write downs and like sort of uh, companies not succeeding as part of the venture game too. Do you think that there's a, there's an aversion to sort of like the postmortem of you invested in this person who came from a background and it doesn't have to be racial or gender, but even, even academic background, somebody went to a two year school or something like that. Right. Uh, and the company didn't work out. And like the, the, like, you know, sort of like the, the failure is attributed to the fact that you went outside the formula yeah, versus, I, you know, sticking I, yeah. to what worked. No, I totally agree. And it's complete crap, right? Because there's so many, you know, firms founded by, you know, folks in the majority that don't work. And that's what I often point to. Whenever somebody makes that argument, I'm like, my God, just allow folks to fail at the same rate, right? Like most don't turn into Stripe, you know, they just don't, right? And so like, you have to have an open mind towards this. And and, and the key thing, like it gets to exactly what you were saying, Arun, you have to get your mind comfortable with taking a risk on people. Right. Because the thing is, and that's why I say like for our firm and when I talk to other firms about diversity too, I I say the pipeline is key, right? Because you got to just get comfortable meeting with people who don't look like you. Cause you can't, you can't assume that if you're doing a search for a CEO and you say, I want to make sure that either I, you know, really strongly consider a woman or underrepresented minority that, you know, you're going to give that person a real shot just for that search, if you haven't met with a lot of people before, 
right? Like you have to have been totally. swimming in diverse waters to get comfortable making the decision at the time of making the decision. And so like what I really focus on is just trying to, to, what we say is diversify pools, diversify pools, because the more diverse people that people interact with, the more they'll be comfortable, the more they're comfortable, the more they'll be comfortable taking risk with them. Yeah, they don't like retract into this like feeling of, oh gosh, you know, I, I took a risk and it didn't work out. I'm going to just revert back to my normal self. I, I felt like I was very fortunate to have been uh, and tipping my hat to LinkedIn at this point. I think LinkedIn did a very good job of almost verbatim what you just mentioned of what Arden's trying to do, doing that for employees and talent pools, um, not even from like a race perspective or a gender perspective or whatever, but also from um, like a... a I don't know if class is the right word, but from like yep. um, folks who haven't had the education background that that everyone else has, um, that typically comes through those doors. And so we had this program called the Reach Program, yep. where we like developed yep. talent from these different pools that like typically wouldn't have have gotten picked. And I that experience honestly changed me, um, yep. and and I I think for the better. So that just what you're saying with me, like you know, I still have a long ways to go, and I think many of us do, but like. That was just such a profound experience for me that it's really great to hear that Arden's trying to do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, you know, you have to be intentional about it, right? So, yeah. you know, like for us, you know, we're forming relationships with seed funds and angel investors who focus on underrepresented mm -hmm. minorities and women. So, you know, like you have to go out to, to get to that 25 plus percent. You have to be intentional about it. Same thing uh, on the executive side. But then when you do, you're like, oh, wow, there's a lot of really great stuff, you know, that's out there. And I yeah. think the more that people start to do that, the more comfortable they're, they're going to be. Really cool. So uh, generally just moving into like VC, generally, we've already talked about this and uh, a little bit, but in terms of, you know, you've talked about relationships and that makes uh like a great vc how do you cultivate those relationships as a venture capitalist like are you, there is there you let a rune like buy lunch for that's what uh, i was, I was about to say you don't let people buy lunch that's Sorry, for Rune. sure no totally yeah. i mean i'm like oh i still feel horrible but i do oh, have God. dinner pittsburgh next time i'm there i have dinner i have dinner. totally totally yeah, uh yeah. you know i'll take you up on that uh yeah you know and, and you know and saying you, you met with people who you don't normally uh meet with he met with a guy who at the time because i still haven't had a haircut yet during COVID. COVID, looked like Mowgli from the Jungle Book <laughs> when he sat cool down across. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so like you know he, he's you know uh, Phil is true to what he says uh, in uh, when he says that um, he will sit down with people who don't look like him. I think it is or don't look like the, the norm. It's it's definitely the case. Um, so uh, but when you talk about those relationships, like yeah. what like like you know are there any tenants you have because like it's a lot of people like associate, you know, relationships with just having good social skills or being an extrovert or things yeah. like that. But it's interesting when I meet venture capitalists, it kind of runs the gamut and the, the, you know, the success isn't necessarily correlated to how much of an, you know, how good their social skills are. Um, you know, it, there's, there's these sort of like, there's a wide variance in the people that sort of get involved and there's a wide like variance in how they cultivate relationships. And I just love to hear your take on how you do that. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think the reason why you see a wide variance in the people who are successful is because, you know, what really what it really takes is just being authentically who you are, you know, and really knowing yourself and leaning into your strengths, you know, and, and like for me, you know, so first, 
venture for me, venture capital or angel investing or any of this stuff. I'm like a kid in a candy store. Like I love it. Like I, I would do it if I weren't, I mean, I wasn't paid, you know, given I was an angel, but like, <laughs> I just love this stuff. And so like, I am constantly in search of an interesting founder or industry, um, uh, you know, uh, executive to talk to about the latest trends. And so like, I cannot sleep at night when I'm trying to, you know, learn about some new category. Right. And so like, for me, I am just, you know, first I am persistent and I am aggressive about learning everything I can about these markets. And, and I think, you know, that sort of, um, you know, this sort of approach to sort of, you know, authentically, you know, reaching out to folks, getting in front of people. It allows you to form the relationship, but it also allows you to stay on top of the latest trends, which is, I think, mm -hmm. what people sort of relate to. Uh, and then the other thing I'd say is, you know, like for me personally, like the reason I love venture is I love supporting founders and helping them be successful, right? Like I, like to me, like when I meet somebody, like I like I can envision, you know, where it can go and like there's nothing like supporting that person and helping them get there. And so I think people see and feel that, too, that, you know, I am there for them and I am willing to do whatever it takes to help them get to where they want to go. And so that's that's sort of what I do. Um, but everybody has a different way of thinking about it. And so then there's there's the other end of that relationship, which is the founder and the company itself. Uh, what, what sort of, what do you look for? I, I, that feels like a very, uh, what do you call not nuanced question. So I apologize, but, um, maybe if you could just, uh, walk us through that as best you can. Yeah, totally. So, cause I do think there are things you can look to, right? Like I would say, um, first and foremost, you know, the founder needs to be, you know, world-class in something, right? Like, and what I mean by that is, so, so it's, actually, let me take a step back my frame is founder market fit, right? And so mm -hmm. what I focus on is sort of really trying to find a founder or, or, or sort of assess a founder and identify that individual who's exceptional, but what they're exceptional at is what the, this sort of, whatever they're pursuing, you know, it's sort of like what it takes to be successful in that area, right? So it's almost like, hey, you know, like, when you, when you look at like, you know, folks who are very talented, right? Like very talented people often have something they're just exceptional at, right? And the key is sort of really understanding that, really understanding them and then saying, hey, what they're looking to do is this. How does what they're really good at relate to that? So that's, that's one thing. The next is that, you know, great founders tend to be folks who have always wanted to or have always sort of wanted to start businesses. It's sort of like, that's what they love to do. And you can sort of see it in their past. They often had side businesses or they, they had some other pre-business that they started. You can sort of see in their past that they're just always entrepreneurial, right? And it's sort of, when you meet with them, the ones that, you know, are, you know, the ones that I really like to back are the ones who like, they cannot see themselves doing anything else, right? Like this is just what they were born to do. Mm -hmm. They, they just, they can't do anything else. Right. And then the last thing is like this grit and tenacity, right? Like starting companies, it, it's an unnatural act. Like, you know, you know, being able to sell into companies when you have nothing, right? Like it's really 
really hard, right? And so like founders have to be like, you know, the type that are literally going to not just walk through a wall, but walk through a wall and have other people follow them through it, right? Because they're so freaking tenacious, right? And so like you just look for those type of things in a founder. So I want to just double click on one thing there that like it just if you fold it on top of itself, it seems incongruent a little bit to me. Yeah. Which is, you know, you have this case of people who couldn't see themselves doing anything else but starting a company, running a company, that sort of thing. Yeah. But in the sort of like scope of diversity inclusion, do you think there's a case of people who just haven't, you know, maybe they didn't have a role model, maybe the the access to economic opportunities was a little bit different and they could, they genuinely didn't see it before, but through no fault of their own. Yeah. Absolutely. But, but again, in their past, you can see entrepreneurialism, right? Even in terms of like, and you can see it. So it's not, I'm not saying necessarily, because I think to your point specifically, right? Like depending on your background, being able to quit your job and being able to quit your job and start a company is a luxury in a lot of ways, right? Because Mm -hmm. you can figure out a way to support yourself. And some people don't have the means to do that at all. Right. And so, and I'm not sort of, there are some like doing that is hard in any respect. And some people will go, you know, like quitting, you know, even if you have a small nest egg, some people don't have much of anything, but there's something that's allowing you to sustain yourself. Some people just aren't in that circumstance, right? They just aren't. Um, but even those people, they'll often have sort of entrepreneurial experiences. They did something on the side. They, they were tinkerers. They were, they're just, cause it's entrepreneurship is it's, it's almost like it's a form it's, it's founders are a type you know, they really are like early, yeah. early employees, early employees are, are one thing, but the person who's going to found a company and who has the resolve to sort of take it through multiple rounds of venture capital, like that is a type. And and so you'll see that in, in things that they've done in the past, even if they haven't had the opportunity to found their own company. So would you say that in some way, at least being a founder, there's like a level of like almost instinct involved, like somebody will sort of just gravitate to it without maybe not even knowing they are? I would say it even more. It's like, it's, it's literally, you know, I wouldn't say a gravitation. I I guess one could call it a gravitation, but a very strong gravitation. It's like, they can't, they, they are constantly thinking about whatever this thing is. Like it's a calling. It's a, yes, it's a calling. Yeah. That's the way to think about it. It's a, they can't do anything but mm-hmm. this, right? It's the, t- I'll give you a perfect example. Um, just to give you a sense of like what it takes, you know, I was having a conversation actually when I was in Pittsburgh with another VC and he was describing this company. So he backed this company and this company, um, I don't own, you know, I don't know if it's privileged. So I'll just say that he backed this company. The company was in a particular space. They had an interesting idea, but it was seasonal, right? And so they got through the first season and they had some early feedback, but not enough to raise the next round. So they ran out of money. And the person was married. He had a kid. The, the other, the, there were some other founders. They ended up moving in with one of the founders and his wife and kid. They lived there with no money for for yeah. months, and then they made it. And then they got an acquisition offer, 
which was a reasonable one. Like they would have made money on it, real money. They yeah. turned it down. So they're, wow. they have run out of money. <laughs> they are in somebody's house, you know, with the wife sort of supporting them all. Get the acquisition offer, turn it down, get to the next season, end up doing well. They've raised more money now and they're doing really well. And I'm not saying they should have turned it down or not, but it's like this resolve to build whatever they had in their minds. Like that, that's a grit that, you know, only certain people have, you know, it's, it's a unique personality type. I feel like uh, after hearing about grit here, I got to get uh, Angela Duckworth on the podcast next. There you go. Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, Jake, have you ever read her book, Grit or Phil? Yeah. No. no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't read the uh, book, but I have listened to many a podcast. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I feel like I've got the abbreviated version. You have. Uh, so uh, I guess there's one thing I want to just ask Phil before we go into our our hot take segment. Yeah. Um. And, you know, a lot of people talk about success uh, and there's always books on success and things like that. But I feel like the conversation, people don't talk about failure nearly as much, which I think is actually the more common and yeah. prevalent, like sort of like trend uh, in people's lives. Right. Could you maybe tell us about a time you failed and like what you learned from it and how it changed maybe your approach to things? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, I don't even know which one to pick, but I'll talk about one specifically, you know, as it relates to founder market fit because i you know when i you know given this is more focused on venture um so there's this founder that i backed who you know like so when you typically think about you know what you're looking for right you, you typically look for you know very bright tenacious you know repeat founders you know who've had some success all those things and so this particular founder very bright very successful, had just sold his last company for hundreds of millions of dollars, still had fire in the belly to build something new, was going into a new market uh, that was just emerging at the time. Um, and he had a hardware background. This was a hardware area. And so it was just like, man, this, I wasn't sure about the idea, but I was like, this is the right individual for this. And uh, we ended up putting, you know, a decent amount of money behind it and it didn't work. And the reason is because his first company was hardware, but it was sort of like telecom infrastructure. And so he mm. was selling into businesses. And the second was uh, in the B2C space. It was sort of a do-it-yourself sort of security thing. And, um, you know, that's when I really started to dial in on this sort of founder market fit because it was like he really understood hardware he was successful but what it took to be successful in that market was really understanding the consumer journey and being able to create this consumer product that they loved and he hadn't done that before right and so yeah. that's you know where i really started sort of digging in around that but as i think about venture just in general i think now i've been a part of close to 40 companies you know they're are a number of uh, sort of successes and failures. And what I really try to do in every one is do like a deep, deep, deep postmortem on what worked and what didn't. And for uh, me, that's what's really honed my, my deal acumen over time. That's awesome. I was going to ask about the postmortem side of it. Uh, it seems like you're fairly reflective when it comes to those deals coming oh. through. And, and yeah, that's pretty incredible. I, I think... Um, I, actually, I'd love to hear, like, how does the pro that process typically go? And then I'll move into the hot take. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, like, you know, one of the things about venture, which is probably obvious, but not, but not completely obvious. It's like over time, 
right? One of like once you really, you know, learn how to do it, and let's say you've had some success. You know, some people are very successful, some aren't, but let's say you're successful. The hardest thing to do is remain open, right? Because like you've made money doing you know, certain things, right. And you sort of, whether it's particular types of founders or particular types of markets, you know, you sort of can get lulled into focusing on those areas. And a big part of being successful in venture is always being open to that next thing. Right. And so as I think about, you know, the postmortem, you know, what I try to do are sort of two things. One, you know, first, like when I think about my postmortem process, there's a postmortem on the deals I do. Right. Mm but I have a much larger library of deals that I sort of really liked, you know, that either somebody else did or, you know, that I didn't even see. So I track those too, just to get a sense of, you know, how those ended up as well. And, and I really try to be, you know, really humble about the whole process and just say, you know, what, even when they work, you know, like what worked, what didn't work, why did it work? Why didn't it work? What could I have done differently? You know, I think a lot about the team and team construction and, you know, I try to really think more about like, what did I know about the founder at the time? What did I miss? Cause I often think about, you know, team building in terms of, what is best to complement this founder? And so you really need to understand the founder to do that. And so I do a lot of that. Um, but then at the end of it, I try to leave the takeaways at a high level and not specific to the industry so that it allows me to remain open to just new ideas and new opportunities. Awesome. That makes sense. Uh, it's probably why Arden VC, you know, everyone should be on the lookout for it. Uh, so that's there fantastic as we see. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, cool. So hot take time. So one thing that Arun and I do in every episode is we have a hot take. Sometimes it's related to, to your work on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes it's not. Um, but we want to make it random and, and uh, about recent events. So uh, what we're asking for is just a gut you know, reaction to, to what we bring up. Um, so the hot take for this week is uh, how do you feel about the Apple Epic spat around the App Store 30% rake? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting, right? Like I, you know, I think about Apple as it relates to that issue. I also think about it as it changed its rules as it relates to, uh, you know, um, information used for targeting that's going to have a massive impact on, you know, a lot of businesses. And, you know, the thing I, what I worry about, you know, there's a couple of macros that I worry about, right? So the biggest I worry about every day, well, two biggest, uh, income inequality and, and, you know, racial equity are, are the two. Uh, but the other is, I think, as it relates to technology, you have these big tech platforms now that have a tremendous amount of market power. And we don't have typical governor, government approaches to managing them. And I just worry, and I think the 30% rake is a good example that, you know, left unchecked that, you know, they can really tip the scales. And so, you know, I, I, I really worry about that. For sure. Uh, I think that closes us out. Uh, Phil, thanks for so much for coming on and spending time with us and, and educating us really. Um, I know that, you know, you're somebody I, I look to for, I guess, uh, I look to for guidance on multiple levels. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. 
cool. Hey everyone, thanks Phil. Arun and I are yeah, extremely yeah. grateful to have you as a Techonomics listener. As a reminder, the views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked to the newsletter, website, posts, or posted on social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person, company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.